This morning's reading comes from Luke 11, 14 to 23. Jesus and the Prince of Demons. One day Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. But some of them said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, Satan, the prince of demons. Others trying to test Jesus commanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He knew their thoughts, so he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say I am empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will, con- so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man like Satan is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe, until someone even stronger attacks and empowers him, strips him of his weapons and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. And now our second Bible reading picks up following the first one at Luke chapter 11, verse 24. Jesus said, When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. May God grant that more light and truth break forth from his word. Amen. Almost two years ago, I first visited this church, and it was in the March two years ago that I came to preach with a view. 
Now, after that service, there was a chance for everyone to ask me questions. And I can still remember what the first question was. It was, do you believe in the devil? I have to admit, it wasn't the question I expected. It kind of surprised me a little. And the reason it surprised me is because people don't really talk about the devil these days. It's just not something that you hear people going on about. I was a little surprised, but at the same time, I was really pleased. Because it shows that this church is, well, that's something that they care about and are willing to talk about, that we care about and are willing to talk about. And you know, my answer today would be the same as it was back then. And that was simply yes. I do believe in the devil. And I think that one of the most dangerous things we can do is pretend that he doesn't exist. But also that God is greater. So whatever the devil may or may not do, God is more powerful. And the devil will always be defeated. I said it's not something that we talk about these days, but you know it should be. We tend not to talk about this kind of thing because it can seem a bit dark and a bit scary. We certainly rarely hear it preached upon. But here we have a passage that means that we've got to tackle it head on because that is exactly what it is about. So let's do that. Now the passage in Luke begins with a man who's mute. He's mute because of demons. So Jesus cast them out and he could speak again. Everyone there was amazed. Now imagine being there in that moment Imagine hearing a mute man speak again. Imagine seeing something like that. Imagine witnessing firsthand Jesus at power and his power that is greater than anyone or anything making the difference that it does. That would be so incredibly exciting. Well, that's part of how people reacted. We heard that they were amazed. But rather than being excited for the man who could now speak whose life had completely turned around, they would rather, instead of hearing more about Jesus and trying to find out more about him who had done this amazing thing, there's a very different response from the crowd. And in verse 14 to 16, it said, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. But some said, by Be- by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him, asking him for a sign from heaven. Some people reckoned that he'd done, the, done it by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Or in other words, that he'd used Satan's power to cast out the demons, not the power of God. These people totally rejected Jesus and his power, even though they saw firsthand the things that he did. And the other group, they were people who wanted to see more signs. They weren't convinced by that, they wanted to see more. But the thing I want you to notice, first of all, was that no one was denying what had just happened. No one was claiming that Jesus didn't cast demons out of a man. No one thought that the man was not now healed. They saw what had happened. They didn't deny the basic facts of the event. But what did happen was that people had their own theories about how it had happened. And they either said it wasn't down to him or they wanted more proof. They thought he was getting his power from Satan. But no one denied that the devil or demons exist. And I think sometimes in today's society, 
we find ourselves falling into the trap of pretending that he's not real. We're perhaps sceptical because of the way that media portrays this kind of thing, and that's not surprising. But the first thing we need to do is actually accept that the devil and demons do exist. In his book, which provides a statistical analysis of religious beliefs, a guy called George Barner cites several fascinating statistics based on a survey. He said, The devil or Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol. And then people had to respond to that as a statement. And he asked, do you agree? Agree somewhat? Disagree somewhat? Or disagree strongly with that statement? So I'll just say the statement again. It was the devil and Satan, or Satan, is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. 32% agreed strongly. 11% agreed somewhat. And 5% didn't know. So the total number, out of the total number of people who responded, 48% either agreed that Satan was only symbolic or they didn't know. 48%. That's huge. So as we look at what happened, I want us to think, first of all, I want us to think about the fact that Satan is real, Satan is active, but remembering that, the God, that God is greater. You see, the danger is that we... If we deny that Satan exists, if we don't acknowledge that he is active in the world today, then we're ill-prepared to stand against him. C.S. Lewis wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. That's certainly true about Satan. Some people totally dismiss him as an impersonal force or a little guy in a red suit with a pitchfork. And on the other hand, end of the spectrum, many people attribute too much power and too much importance to him and see him as God's equal, which he most certainly is not. Both of those views are dangerous. So... I invite you to lay aside any hesitation you might have about what I'm saying and just go with me on this. I think that if we could see things in the spirit world, then we would be both amazed and utterly terrified at the same time. There are spiritual battles that go on all around us, whether we're aware of them or not. And Ephesians 6, 10 to 12 says, Be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. Put on the full armour of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, much as it might seem that way at times, but our our struggle is with things unseen. Because Satan confuses us, He discourages us, he condemns us, pushes us, frightens us, rushes us and worries us. He causes us to doubt, he causes division. He tries to steal our joy and steal any Christian witness that we might have. The devil is real and he is active. But let me tell you about a story about a guy called Carl Amading. He said he was watching a wildcat in a zoo. 
As I stood there, he said, an attendant entered the cage through the door on the opposite side. He had nothing in his hands apart from a broom. Carefully closing the door, he proceeded to sweep the floor of the cage. He observed that as the worker had no weapon in his hand to ward off an attack by the beast. In fact, when he got to the corner of the cage where the wild cat was, he actually prodded the cat with his broom. The wild cat hissed at him and then laid down in another corner of the enclosure. So he remarked to the intendant, you are certainly a brave man. No, I ain't brave, he replied as he continued to sweep. Well, then the cat must be tame. No, came came the reply, he ain't tame. Well, if you aren't brave and the wild cat ain't tame, then I can't understand why it doesn't attack you. Amadine said that the man chuckled. Then he replied with an air of confidence, Mister, he's old, he ain't got no teeth. The devil is real, the devil is active and can cause untold amounts of harm. But when up against Jesus, the devil ain't got no teeth. He's defeated and he doesn't like it. The ultimate authority is our living God. Satan is not God's equal. He's just an angel who fell from his lofty position in heaven and took other angels with him who are now demons. God created man, made to be in his image, and Satan got in the way of that. He created people to have a relationship with him and to have authority over earth. But Satan deceived them right back in the Garden of Eden into disobeying him. By breaking their relationship with God, he was attempting to destroy those who were most important to God and hurt God in the process. And since those times, the devil's tried to defile and destroy God's treasured creation, humans, by forcing them to worship him instead of our creator God. But the devil was defeated at the cross, and now he tries to drag as many people down with him as he can. But he never does well up against Jesus. When the devil or his demons encounter Jesus, they immediately submit to his overwhelming authority. The simple presence of Jesus makes demons tremble and flee. You see, demons are not all-powerful, much as they'd like to make us think they are. In fact, they must always obey the authority of Christ. But why did the people at that time think that Jesus was using Satan's power to cast out the demons? Well, it doesn't really make sense unless we know about how the Jews themselves did exorcisms. The way they did this kind of thing involved long incantations meant to torture a demon into submission. But their dignity was marred and the demon would usually not leave. Much of the time, Jewish exorcists had to resort to old-fashioned witchcraft to do their work successfully. They had to call on stronger demons with more authority. And in the end, the person afflicted was left in a worse state than in the first place. Jesus, however, has ultimate authority. And by his word alone, demons would flee. But they didn't understand that, so they thought that he must be channeling Satan himself. Of course, that wasn't the case. Jesus pointed out that their argument was ridiculous. How can Jesus be using the power of Satan to break the power of Satan? What sense does that make? It would be foolish for Satan to cast out his own demonic forces, since a house or a kingdom divided by itself cannot stand. It's unreasonable to say that this miracle came from Satan's power, because he wouldn't try and undo his own work. That just doesn't make sense. 
And you know, in some ways, this same kind of unreasonable thinking hasn't changed one bit. Rather than accepting that God is at work in and around us, in the work, um, in the world, in the normal and the everyday things, people attribute things to random chance. People accept all sorts of things, it would seem, rather than accepting that God is all-powerful and that God can do anything. But Jesus continues in verse 20 to say, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is operating by the finger of God. That is the very power of God. This phrase, the finger of God, is a powerful image which refers back to the Exodus. The only other time that we hear that phrase, the finger of God, is when God wrote the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. The power of God is on display in Jesus and showing the arrival of his promised kingdom. He is essentially saying, if the kingdom has come because I have come, then I am the king, I am the promised Messiah. The implication is that if the kingdom of God has come because of his arrival, then Jesus is the king of this kingdom. The story that he tells serves to prove that point. He talks about a strong man, the strong man being Satan. And he says that Jesus is the stronger one who attacks him and overcomes him. He is the king. He is the promised Messiah and he is in charge. So when Satan tries to confuse us, discourage us, condemn us, frighten us, rush us and worry us, when he fills our minds with doubt that causes division, when he wants... Um, then we need to remember that God's voice enlightens us, encourages us, convicts us, leads us, reassures us, stills us, and comforts us. He guides us with confidence through our doubting, and he wants us to be united in him. God is greater than the devil. But there is no middle ground. Let's look again at the point where Jesus is speaking about these things. People are claiming that he's casting out demons through the power of Satan. And Jesus has dealt with that thinking. But other people there want more signs. They're unwilling to make a commitment. They want to keep testing Jesus and see more miracles and see more signs before they're willing to commit. Notice how, what Jesus says to these people. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's too common in churches these days, even churches, for people to sit on the fence and be non-committal. We have to be PC and accept all opinions. We are in danger of watering down some things that we know to be true so as not to offend others. It's all too easy to want to keep people happy and never really give anyone challenge. But you can't sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. What he's saying is, if you're not with him completely then you're against him, at least in part. There is no middle road when it comes to following Jesus. I found a quote by Maggie Thatcher that I thought was quite fitting. It said, Standing in the middle of the road is very dangerous. You get knocked down by the traffic from both sides. In verse 24 to 26, Jesus tells us of the danger of standing in the middle of the road, of sitting on the fence. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives and the house uh, finds a house swept clean and put in order, then it goes in 
to take seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. The point of what Jesus said there is that there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. There is no neutrality with him. If you continue to sit on the fence and don't commit your life to him and don't accept the Holy Spirit into your life, then you're leaving space for other things. There's more than likely going to be a void in your life, and if that void isn't filled by Jesus, then it's going to be filled with anything else. Often we can be stubborn and resistant to truly giving him every part of our lives. We might say that we're with him, but it's easy to be a bit like other people in the passage who are sitting around and waiting for more signs. If our lives aren't guided by the Holy Spirit, then who is our influence? Even in the most subtle of ways, it's likely to be certain. We need to be completely renewed by Jesus and have him fill every part of our lives. Jesus is looking for people who will give their lives absolutely, totally, fully to him. Not part of their lives, but every part of their lives. If we don't wholeheartedly follow Jesus, then chances are we fall back into our old way of doing things. If you're sitting on the fence about whether or not to follow Jesus, then this is what he's saying. If you're not for him, you're at least in part against him. Sitting on the fence means that you're sitting with the defeated Satan. It's like seeing the miracles of Jesus, but never choosing to follow him. It's like hearing how God wants us to live and have a new start that we can have through Jesus, but not actually going for it. The devil exists, yes. He has demons who work with, us, with him to get between us and God, whether we can see it or not. There's a spiritual battle going on around us all of the time, but God is greater. God can do anything, and he wants to do anything. He wants to fill our lives. He wants to fill our lives with his presence, his peace, and his purpose. So the question for every single one of us is, what will you do with Jesus? It's quite possibly the most important question you'll ever be asked. Because it's something we should all have an answer for, whether we're Christians already or not. If we're already following Jesus, how much further can we go with him? How much deeper should our relationship with God be? Are we open to allow the Holy Spirit to work within us? Are we open to what he has to say to us and the ways he wants us to change to be more like him? Moody was to have a campaign in England and an elderly pastor protested, why do we need this Mr Moody? He's uneducated, inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he's got a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? A younger, wiser pastor rose and responded, no, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr Moody. Does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on us? And if you've not committed your life to follow the Almighty God who loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die in our place, then what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for more signs or is the signs we've already had, are they enough? I want us to spend some time just reflecting on that thought. What will you do with Jesus? And I want you to open your hearts to God. So let's take some time and just sit and listen to the music that's going to be played. And in a few moments, I'll close with a prayer.
Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for all the ways in which you bless our lives, the love of family and of friends, the joy of knowing you and hearing your word. Lord, send your spirit so that we might dream your dreams and see visions of the world as you created it to be. Guide our thoughts and our actions. Bring us closer to you so that we might do your will and dwell with you forever. Amen.